Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for July 2017. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the literature that caught our eye in the last month. So let's start with the New England Journal of Medicine, Ventilation in Extremely Preterm Infants and Respiratory Function at 8 Years. Now, we like to think that what we do in intensive care is evolving and is beneficial to your long-term outcomes. So, is that true? This study looks at the question, is assisted ventilation for extremely preterm infants, that is those less than 28 weeks gestation, getting better over time and resulting in better outcomes? So there has been a change in the delivery of care for these infants over the last 25 years, from a more invasive endotracheal intubation to a less invasive, non-invasive CPAP modes with lower oxygen. And this is around an effort to reduce ventilation-associated lung injury or bronchopulmonary dysplasia. In addition, other interventions such as glucocorticoids and exogenous surfactant have been introduced to modify the risk of postnatal lung disease. So, has this been effective? This longitudinal follow-up study conducted in all four NICUs in Victoria, Australia, describes the characteristics, interventions and outcomes of preterm infants for three periods, 1991 and 92, that was 225 infants, 1997, 150 infants, and 2005, 170 infants. And this included the duration of oxygen therapy and oxygen requirements at 36 weeks of age and expiratory airflow at eight years of age. So a truly long-term respiratory follow-up study. So what did they report? Well, firstly, survival to eight years of age was 53%, 70%, and 63%. And make of that what you will. Treatment did change over time. Among survivors, antenatal glucocorticoids and surfactant increased and postnatal glucocorticoids decreased in 2005. The duration of assisted ventilation rose over time due to an increase in the duration of CPAP with decreasing endotracheal ventilation. The duration of ventilation and oxygen dependence at 36 weeks fell with increasing gestational age. That's not surprising. The duration of oxygen therapy was longer in patients receiving surfactant. After multivariate analysis, durations of assisted ventilation and nasal CPAP were substantially higher in 2005 than either 91, 92 or 97. And the mean duration of oxygen therapy was higher in 2005 than in 97. In terms of outcomes, duration of oxygen therapy and the rate of oxygen dependence at 36 weeks increased over time and airflows at eight years of age were worse in 2005 than in earlier periods. So the major findings are that over the three time periods over a quarter of a century, survivors of extremely preterm birth experienced longer mean duration of assisted ventilation, particularly nasal CPAP, with no parallel short-term or long-term improvements in respiratory function 
In fact, there were higher rates of oxygen dependence at 36 weeks of age. So what does this mean? This is a surprising result. The expectation that we all have about our healthcare delivery is that these incremental changes we make over decades lead to better outcomes. And this is challenging, that assumption. So is this that nasal CPAP is injurious or overused? Is the decrease in postnatal glucocorticoid use a factor that needs to be considered? Or does this, and this is what the authors raise, reflect the increased use and response to oximetry? And, and what they tell us is that standard continuous oximetry came in during this period. Um, and as a, because we respond to low oxygen sats, the, in the later years, children received more oxygen regularly and maybe this has been injurious. Either way, it's a fascinating study over a very long time period and raises questions about how we can improve long-term outcomes and seriously questioning what we do. Let's stay with small children uh, and go to JAMA, the effect of depth and duration of cooling on death or disability at age 18 months among neonates with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. The current standard of care for neonates born at full term with moderate or severe hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy is cooling for 72 hours at 33.5 degrees Celsius. So could cooling to 32 degrees or for longer, 120 hours or both be better? So data from animal studies suggests that this may be the case, but as we know, you can't just apply animal data to humans. This study explores this question in a prospective RCT of 364 neonates born at 36 weeks gestation or greater, stratified by level of hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy in a 2x2 two two factorial design, so that was 32 versus 33.5, 72 versus 120, conducted at all 18 US sites in the Eunice Kennedy Shriver NICHD Multicenter Neonatal Research Network. The study was closed for futility by the DSMC after 364 of the planned 726 neonates were enrolled. And that sample size was based on a power of 80%, 5% loss to follow-up, and estimated comparison of death or disability of 37.5% and 27.5% in the two groups. So the primary outcome was death or moderate to severe disability at 18 to 22 months. Disability was classified using growth, vision, hearing, neurological and developmental assessment. In the 72 hour group, it was 31.8%, 120 hour group, 31.6%. 33.5 degree Celsius group, 31.9%, 32 degrees group, 31.5%. There's no significant difference in any of those four groups. Secondary outcomes, most did not differ with the exception that duration of cooling of 120 hours versus 72 hours was associated with more deaths and fewer re-hospitalizations after discharge, fewer infants with motor scores less than 70. Secondary analysis, a statistically significant interaction between depth and duration was reported, suggesting a possibility of higher mortality associated with deeper and or longer cooling. And the rates of the primary outcomes in the four groups were 
28% in the 32 for 120 hours, 29.3% in the 33.5 for 72 hours, and that's the current standard, 34.4% in 33.5 for 120 hours, and 34.5% in 32 for 72 hours. So overall, these findings do not support a change from the current standard of 72 hours at 33.5 degrees Celsius for neonates with moderate or severe hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. There are some interesting findings for discussion. The 32 degrees Celsius and 120 hour group had the highest mortality, but the lowest moderate to severe disability, with Bayesian analyses indicating a probably that longer and deeper cooling reduces death to disability. However, the lower disability rate was offset by increased mortality. The authors advised this outcome should be interpreted with caution, given the early closure of the study and significant interaction between depth and duration of cooling. So what next? How do you further investigate the relationship and effect on mortality and disability between duration of depth and cooling in this group? Okay, we can continue to follow themes looking at cardiac arrest, but let's move from children to adults. So again in JAMA, targeted temperature management for 48 versus 24 hours and neurological outcome after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, a randomized clinical trial. So defining the role of TTM in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest continues to evolve. So to recap, in 2002, we had Bernard's New England Journal study, 72 patients, 33 degrees versus normal thermia for 12 hours only, 180-day favorable neurological outcome, 49% versus 26% in favor of cooling. That is, favorable neurological outcome occurred in 49% of cooled patients. Again, in 2002, we had the HACAS uh, trial, 272 patients in the New England Journal, 32 to 34, so similar to Bernard, versus normal thermia, similar to Bernard, for this time 24 hours, not 12 hours, again 180 day mortality, 41% versus 55% was mortality, favourable neurological outcome, 55 versus 39%, favoured cooling. In 2013, so 10, 11 years later, Nielsen and colleagues in the New England Journal went to 950 patients in the TTM trial, 33 versus 36, for 28 hours, and then increasing by half a degree Celsius per hour to 37 by 36 hours. And there was no difference in 180-day mortality or favorable neurological outcome, which was 46 versus 48%. So remember in Bernard's original study with only 72 patients, the favorable neurological outcome was 49%. Uh, and in the, the other one in that year, it was 55%. So what does this paper, the Time Differentiated Therapeutic Hypothermia Trial, add? In this RCT of TTM, they compare 33 for different durations, 24 or 48 hours, followed by rewarming by half a degree an hour to 37 degrees Celsius in 355 adults having out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, excluding asystole and unwitnessed. And it was in 10 ICUs in 10 European hospitals. So they found, firstly, that only 355 of 907 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests were eligible, and they were similar at baseline. 
The intervention worked. The temperature profiles differed over 48 hours. There was no significant difference in favourable neurological outcome at six months, which was 69%, pretty high, in the 48% group versus 64% in the 24-hour group. Mortality at six months was 27% in the 48-hour group versus 34%, and that was not significant. And there was no difference in other pre-specified outcomes. More adverse events occurred in the 48-hour group, and ICU length of stay was longer in the 48-hour group, 250 versus 117 hours. Mechanical ventilation duration was longer in the 48-hour group, 120 versus 87 hours. Uh, and this was seen in survivors where it was 128 versus 85 hours and reversed in non-survivors, 107 versus 150 hours. So prolonged targeted temperature management at 33 degrees Celsius did not result in better neurological outcome. However, the study was powered to detect a difference of 15% in the primary outcome of favourable neurological outcomes at six months. And is the observed 5% difference in favourable neurology important? Because it may be clinically just that this study wasn't powered for it. Is the 7% decrease in six-month mortality important? Do these non-significant results warrant extra mechanical ventilation and length of stay associated with longer cooling? The editorial sums up the evidence nicely. Together with other trials, the available data suggests that the benefit from a package of care, including TTM, is resilient to implementation with a range of target temperatures, 32 to 36, a range of onsets, 0 to 6 hours, and a range of durations, 12 to 48 hours. Perhaps the dose-effect relationship is flat across a wide range of these doses, or perhaps trials are biased to not detect individual differences. Teasing out the individual variation in response is going to be tricky and may need targets to monitor that we're not monitoring and different trial designs. So that's a pretty exciting idea and evolution of our research into out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Let's change focus and look at frailty. And there are two studies I'm going to talk about. The first was in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, Frailty and Subsequent Disability and Mortality Among Patients with Critical Illness. So we know a lot about the burden that follows critically ill patients out of the hospital, reduced long-term survival, disabilities in activities of daily living, cognitive impairment, poor health-related quality of life. The mechanisms underlying these sequelae are completely understood. Frailty, a multidimensional syndrome characterized by the loss of physiological reserve that reduces the ability to recover from acute stress, may matter. It certainly does outside of ICU. It predicts mortality, disability and cognitive impairment. Inside ICU, the relationship is less clear, although we're starting to explore it more and more. This multi-centre prospective cohort study described the prevalence and severity of frailty in adults aged 18 years of age and older and determined the association between pre-existing frailty and long-term outcomes 3 and 12 months after critical illness in the cohort of patients enrolled in the identical brain ICU and mind ICU studies. They report the following. 
The patients were adults with respiratory failure or shock from uh, MICUs and SICUs in five US centers. Frailty was measured using the clinical frailty score, a well-validated seven-point scale. They recorded this and analyzed using the full CFS rather than dichotomizing to frail versus non-frail. They enrolled 1,047 patients over four years. 32% died by three months. And 546 of the surviving 711, so 77%, were assessed at three months. By one year, an additional 8% had died and 74% of survivors were assessed. The median CFS was three and 30% had a CFS of greater or equal to five, which is clinical frailty. Half of all patients with frailty were younger than 65 years of age. The KM curve showed an increased risk of death at each level of frailty. And after accounting for potential confounders, increasing clinical frailty was independently associated with greater mortality, greater odds of disability in instrumental activities of daily living, and poorer physical health-related quality of life three and 12 months after discharge. These associations were not affected by age. Although CFS was associated with odds of death at three and increased odds of death at three and 12 months, it was not associated with hospital mortality. CFS at enrollment was not associated with cognitive function at three and 12 months. So what does this tell us? Frailty is common, is associated with increased mortality and disability, and this effect is independent of age. It is interesting that cognitive function was not associated with frailty and enrollment, but they did adjust for other factors and excluded dementia patients. So patients who are frail due to cognitive dysfunction are accounted for, and the opposite effect may not be present. Finally, CFS score was associated with an increase in 3- and 12-month mortality, but not hospital mortality. So surely this reinforces the message that we need to lift our outcomes gaze to further horizons. So the second frailty paper is in intensive care medicine, and this is a meta-analysis systematic review on the impact of frailty on intensive care outcomes. So in this study, uh, they tried to explore the relationship between frailty and critical illness. They aim to compare outcomes between frail and non-frail patients admitted to ICU. They looked at eligible studies that included observational or RCT design that reported on frailty using a validated tool in the ICU settings. And in order to best evaluate the impact of frailty, they only included studies that compared at some level frailty and non-frail populations. A total of 10 studies were identified and they enrolled 3,030 patients of which 927 were frail and 2,103 were non-frail. The tool used was the CFS in uh, seven studies, the frailty index in four studies and the frailty phenotype in two. The pooled prevalence of frailty was 30%. There was no significant difference in hospital and ICU length of stay although hospital length of stay was 3.3 days greater in the frail, it wasn't significant, uh, in the use of vasoactive agents or ventilation. Frail patients were less likely to be discharged home than non-frail patients, relative risk of 0.59, p-value less than 0.00001. 
Frailty was associated with higher hospital mortality, a risk ratio of 1.7%. Eight studies reported on the incremental risk of adverse outcomes with increasing frailty score. Seven demonstrate increased mortality risk with increased frailty severity. For example, uh, Brummel's study reported a stepwise increase in 12-month mortality with each CFS point increase. Um, a CFS of 1 was associated with approximately 90% one-year survival. A CFS of 5 had a 50% survival. And those with a CFS of 6 or 7 had a 35% survival rate. So overall, this tells us that frailty is common in critically ill patients. There are no apparent differences in care received and outcomes are worse. In addition, there is an incremental worsening of outcome with increasing frailty. So where from here? Well, we may need to agree on which frailty score to use. I mean, at the moment, clinical frailty score is being used the most, but it would be good if we standardised this. We have to agree what degree of frailty we are interested in. Is it in that score of 1 to 7? We need to understand if there are interventions that will improve outcomes, particularly beyond hospital in frail patients. And we need to understand if there are processes that we cannot improve in frail patients and engage in shared decision-making to provide better person-centred outcomes. So let's finish up with another article in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, Effects of Physician-Targeted Pay-for-Performance Use on Spontaneous Breathing Trials in Mechanically Ventilated Patients. So is pay-for-performance a good thing? And can we find evidence in critical care? So first, we need to find something we want clinicians to do more. So let's set aside the debate about the evidence around spontaneous breathing trials and just accept for now the numerous society guidelines and agree that SBT is associated with improved outcomes. Second, we bring in pay for performance, P4P. Now, traditional US payment models reimburse physicians for the volume and complexity of care they provide. In contrast, under P4P, providers are also reimbursed based on the quality of care they provide. However, for many reasons, it doesn't always work. One of those reasons is the financial incentive may be directed to the hospital, so individual clinicians are not incentivized. So what happens when physician-targeted financial incentives for the performance of daily SBTs are introduced? So this retrospective before and after interrupted time series analysis describes this in multiple ICUs in three academic hospitals that operated under a closed ICU system. Starting in July 2012, they instituted a physician-targeted P4P program tied to processes of care for ICU patients. And the incentive focused on three aspects of care. One, daily SBTs in eligible mechanically ventilated patients. Two, CLABSI rates. And three, VAP. An annual quality bonus of approximately 7.5% of each ICU physician's annual base salary was divided evenly among these three performance measures. Physician compensation depended on whether or not the ICU in which they worked met the performance benchmarks over the course of the year. The incentive payment cutoff was 90% among eligible patient days for SBT and a unit level rate less than the National Nosocomial Infections Surveillance System median for CLABSI and VAP. So they report a final cohort of 7,291 patients divided into three periods, baseline, 
post-intervention year one, post-intervention year two. The largest hospital, Hospital A, reported baseline SBT rates that were high in all three periods, 97, 97, 97.7%, and the physicians received incentive payments for each. Hospital B had the lowest baseline rate, 16.4%, with an increase of 26% in year one, then 94% in year two, so they got their money. Hospital C reported 74.7%, so again, they got their money in year three. The significant increases in SBT rates were accompanied by an increase in SBT exclusions. So in Hospital A, this was 62%, 60%, 64%, no change. So their behaviour didn't change at all. 60% of patients aren't eligible, and of those eligible, well over 90% get their SBT every day. However, in Hospital B, that exclusion rate increased from 40% at baseline to 70% at year two, with a similar pattern in Hospital C. It is important to note that the increase in exclusions did not completely account for the higher rate in Hospital B, as the absolute number of SBT days increased from 28 days to 237 days, but it did account for the increase in Hospital C. So what about outcomes? In Hospital A, not surprisingly, no difference. In Hospital B, the lowest performer at baseline, there was no change in duration, ventilation, length of stay or mortality. In Hospital C, there was a modest decrease in the duration of mechanical ventilation and ICU length of stay in year two. So P4P did get everyone to the much desired greater than 90% SBT rate. But how you got there depended on where you started from. So very compliant hospitals, there was no change. The middle hospital achieved it through better documentation of exclusion while the lowest performing hospital changed both. They excluded more, but they also performed more SBTs. However, there's no convincing association with outcome demonstrated. This raised a lot of questions. SBT on its own, maybe it's just not an effective measure. The inability to translate outcomes from clinical trials to quality audits is common. Perhaps issues that led to hospitals having low compliance to begin with are not solved by simply paying physicians to perform a task. That is, quality care is more complex. Was there a design issue? Is a longer observation period required or are multiple interventions needed before outcome improvements are observed? Is the intervention wrong? Physician P4P may increase the rate of SBTs, but what of the effect on the rest of the ICU team who are not rewarded? Are there negative effects? Do physicians admit patients more likely to be eligible for SBT? Is there gaming? That is, did the increase in eligibility exclusions, which is exception reporting, represent exclusion of eligible patients? Well, there was no evidence of this, and the rate of ineligibility was similar in all three hospitals by year two. So in the end, how do we value quality health care? Physician P4P seems a crude tool to me, likely to change documentation, perhaps activity, but it's limited by not rewarding the whole team, potentially incentivising negative behaviours as well as positive. And that then raises the question, how do we motivate the entire ICU team to deliver the highest quality care? Well, that's it for Journal Club 
July 2017. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next month and come to the site and have a look around. Bye. Shadow in my face. It's pressure in my day.